you know, so many cultures have spoken about the power of the invisible and things that are known through intuition or that artists who look through matter and have seen the underlying energies and structures of things. So we have on many levels this capacity to look, understand and extend our perceptions by the technologies of our time which change our consciousness and deal closely with our creation myths and cosmologies. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. This is the first in the new year of 2022. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Carl Nell until 2017, an Associate Professor in the Department of Fine Arts in the Witt School of Arts, but from 2018, the Senior Adjunct Curator at the Norval Foundation in Cape Town, where he's already curated major retrospective exhibitions of Sidney Kamalo, Ezrum Legai, and Eduardo Villa. As an artist, Carl's work is housed in major public collections in South Africa and internationally, including the South African National Gallery, in the Johannesburg, Durban and Pretoria galleries, while in the USA his work can be found in the National Museum of African Art, the Smithsonian Institute and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. As both an artist and collector and curator of African, Asian and Oceanic art, Carl is internationally regarded. But in this podcast, I want to focus on his work that crosses the boundaries between science and art. In tandem with his work as a curator and art educator, Carl has been the resident artist working with a team of the world's leading astronomers on the Cosmos Project, an investigation into the origins and evolution of the universe. Carl was appointed as an integral part of the scientific team from the launch of the project in 2004 and has produced work informed by the ideas and raw data that have emerged from the scientific project, while also contributing from his own perspective as an artist and intercultural explorer to the Cosmos team's understanding of visual representation, embodied perception, and the implications of dark matter. Over much of his career as an artist, Carl has also been fascinated by paleontology, inspired by the proximity of his family home to the cradle of mankind and the work of paleontologists and anthropaleontologists at Witz. In this discussion, we dig into both areas of scientific investigation that Carl has explored in his artistic practice. The remote origins of humankind as manifested in bones and fossils, and the origins of the universe as revealed in the unimaginably remote traces of light and invisible waves emanating from very distant galaxies. Carl. Great pleasure to have you here on the podcast and to be able to talk about your extraordinary work. And you have such a wide range of cultural and artistic interests that I really need to focus us on the art science engagement and particularly your work in this area of which you've been a a leading exponent from South Africa. There's so much to and fro around this terminology, art meeting science, art science, science art, art sci. What terminology do you think is most appropriate and why for the relationship? Well, uh, firstly, I'm an artist and deeply interested in science. So I really do come to science as an outsider. But 
The links between art and science have always deeply interested me because most people have seen them as very different, that they are separate disciplines. But over many years, I have felt that both art and science have questioned the nature of reality, each uh, in their own way, and that they are about this profound aspect of our species of trying to understand the world and ourselves. So the scientific and the artistic do engage the creation of a language of meaning. And we are the only species to translate our thought and our experience into two dimensions. So as artists, we draw and paint. As scientists use numbers, we, of course, have this long history with our species of pictograms, alphabets, and linear systems of mathematics. All these systems are are highly codified, and they do enable us to retrace the steps of insight that are taken by either scientists or by artists. So sometimes when I look at a Picasso etching from the Vollard suite, a very spare group of lines, maybe 95 lines, but the inclination and the shift in each of those lines tell me that there is a man uh, lying down and two nubile women on either side of him. There is a bunch of flowers and there is a powerful psychological interaction just in the placement of those lines. And so they are extremely codified in that rectangle in the same way as a series of numbers create an equation in the mathematician or the scientist's mind. So I suppose my my interest is deeply in the connection between the mark and the meaning. Carl, as far as I know, you began with a very strong interest as an artist in training, as a collector starting your collections in sacred and traditional forms of art from Africa, Asia, and the Oceanic regions. Can you tell us about your personal trajectory in terms of what led you into your later art science engagements? Yes, it has been an extraordinary process of firstly trying to understand oneself and the art of other cultures, both as an artist and as a viewer. And as a boy, I became very interested in Japanese art and then in African art when I was about 13. And for me, the attempt at Looking at African art was an attempt to understand the continent on which I was living. As an artist, these works were mainly sculptural, and the language of African sculpture is very different to classical European art. It is deeply codified as a direct link to the ancestral world and to the numinous I suppose my interest in the art of other cultures is that the art does deeply embody the values of that society and uh, in a visual form. 
and it enables the makers and the viewers of those pieces to to make these links, be it either to mythology, cosmology, to social mores, but that it is a language. So that is very much the case for the Japanese art that I looked at, and later in looking at the work from the Pacific. And that as artists, there is this uh, quest to make objects which resonate with the society in which they formed and used. And my interest in this underlying value system was pushed somewhat further by looking at what the underlying values were of the society in which we live. Not necessarily the political, which is the main focus of much of South African art, which has been its great strength and power, but for me uh, an interest in the innate values that we take for granted. So we lean across and we flick a switch and the light goes on or you press a button and your computer goes on. And that is based on the kind of technologies which are science-related and that invisibly we are living within a web of ideas which have been formulated by scientists and by those who develop technology and are interested in neural networks and uh, how the computer becomes an extension of the mind and certainly of the body. So I felt I needed to understand that world more clearly to, to be able to understand the, the world in which I'm living. So I was fortunate to be given a Fulbright scholarship to the University of California to look at the links between art and science. When I got to Berkeley, I was particularly focused on, on science and art. And uh, I was fortunate to be able to attend lectures by the Nobel physicist uh, Glazer, who'd worked on the bubble chamber and on particle physics. He was pushing his field towards perception and towards neural networks. And uh, so had a fascinating time following his thought processes in that direction. And there was another physicist uh, at the Lawrence Berkeley Institute, uh, Fritjof Capra. And Capra really looks at the impact of science and society on human value systems, but was also interested in, in, the, in the metaphysical and the mental world that is encapsulated within science and, to some degrees, the complex mystical thoughts, mainly from, from Asia. Very often it just has to do with terminology, that the scientists very often talk about that everything vibrates, and the mystics would say that everything has a sound. And so it's really the same thing, it's just perceived in different ways. So that interested me enormously with Capra. He had one of the most synthetic minds I've ever come across, in pulling many disciplines together. I also spent time with the cognitive linguist, George Lakoff, 
who looked at the origins of metaphor in both art and science and the way that language enables us to make these deep connections and for insight to come from that. Then a man called James Melchert, who also had a very clear, beautiful mind, who had worked with John Cage and was interested in chance and cracks and almost the equations of cracks, and then uh, T.J. Clark uh, in the History of Art Department. So it was a very broad uh, period for me looking at those, those links between society, science, perception. And of course, during that period, Silicon Valley was starting to explode and with Steve Jobs and uh, had uh, fellow students who were um, were at Stanford and were very much part of that. So it was a remarkable world to enter for often on those three years and to extend my thoughts and also to to see how my work was transformed by that into a much stronger sense of mental abstraction, which had to do with neural networks, with light and wave particle theories, and the mathematicians were looking at nonlinear equations. So there was a, a level of submersion at Berkeley which expanded my horizons really dramatically. The value of that kind of study. Carl, that kind of intellectual promiscuity, if I can call it that, that wasn't possible at WITS at that time. Was it unique to a campus like Berkeley? How were you, as you were doing an MFA, how were you able to participate even as just a listener to hardcore physics, science discussion? How did that happen? I couldn't see that happening at WITS at that same time. No, you know, I think the American educational system is much more open and it, it certainly didn't put uh, blinkers on. I mean, I was considered a, a rather unusual student in the art department because I was in many of these other disciplines, but they really did go with it. And it is something that I could not have done at WITS. I mean, I chose Berkeley especially because of these particular people that I have spoken about. I've done quite a lot of research as to where they were and what the constellation of ideas or disciplines were that I could access. And uh, part of that, which we'll also talk about later, was to be in proximity to the Institute of Human Origins with uh, Donald Johansson who's the paleontologist who uh, found uh, Lucy. So um, the, the span was very broad. Uh, <laughs> and all these interests were part of my thinking, but there was nobody that I had found that I could quite bounce them off in the way that I was able to at Berkeley. Okay. And wasn't Berkeley where you also had not academic encounter, but an experience of a major earth tremor? Yes, well, you know, it's on the San Andreas uh, fault. And so there is always this sense of living on an edge. 
I had actually I had gone down for a conference in Los Angeles when it uh, occurred, uh, but it was a, a sizable earthquake in Los Angeles at the time, you know, where one just sees buildings warp, you know, in a way that we are we are unused to in South Africa because everything here is brick and mortar, whereas there it's wood and steel and it's made to bend. And, you know, it's a real wake-up call to live like that because one understands the livingness of the planet and of its ability to shift radically and to affect all of us on it, whereas I'd always grown up with a much stronger sense of solidity, maybe the odd little earth tremor because of the gold mines in Johannesburg. But these were not tectonic shifts. And Carl, after your MFA, you came back to WITS? Yes, I did. I came back uh, to teach in the fine arts department. And my majors were always in sculpture. And I ran a drawing course because in much of my work, I have been particularly interested in the nature of line and this direct transference of mind into mark. And uh, so I did develop a very strong drawing course for students, uh, which was uh, always enormously pleasurable to see students gain skills both in thinking and making and looking. So those were the two areas that I mainly taught. And I had always been involved with the university art museums because of my knowledge of African art. I have uh, expertise in Southern African material, 19th into the 20th century. And so I've written extensively around that material and that informed part of the collecting advocates with fellow colleagues, which was always very exciting to see that collection evolve over decades. And it's now one of the most significant collections of African art in the world, as I understand it. Well, you know, it is very broad. You know, it has a large Southern African collection, which is uh, which is important. It has a smaller component of West and Central African material, which was used in teaching African art that Anitra Nettleton had set up in the History of Art Department. So that was significant. And then with the Standard Bank funding, it meant that we were able to put together a large collection which looked both at historic African art, but also at contemporary. So that really informed the focus of the collection and, of course, uh, led back to my early interests in what is the driving force in the making of pieces that are related both to to life but also to value systems that very often link to the abstract world and in Africa certainly to the ancestral world and to these this deep sense of lineage on the land and with the natural world with plants and animals so it has a much stronger ecological view around the making of art than very often in the West where we have seen it to be a picture on a wall or a sculpture on a, on a plinth. And tell me about the path that led you further into 
the much deeper engagement with astronomy. And I'm thinking particularly of the, the Cosmos project, which you've been integral to. So I was uh, involved in a commission for the French government on the island of Réunion in the Indian Ocean to create a work which engaged the landscape. And Reunion Island has the major hotspot volcanoes on the island, which is called Piton de la Fornes. And I decided to create a timeline uh, from the outer rim of the volcano to the inner rim, which really marked the trajectory of human evolution from the earliest uh, footsteps at Lytoli. I suppose right back to A.R. Forensis with Lucy, right to the present on the rim. And uh, during that time on the island, I spent a night or two on the rim of the volcano looking at the stars and also in this small observatory, which led to a body of work which was exhibited in both London but had two exhibitions in New York. And Nick Scoville and his wife, Zara, saw the work. I met with, with him and he invited me across to Los Angeles. And we had an initial discussion, which was fascinating, around background radiation and the creation of the universe. About three months later, I was back in South Africa. He called me and uh, he said that he was, was setting in place uh, a major undertaking called the Cosmos Project, which would map two square degrees of the universe, which was the deepest field survey ever undertaken. And he asked whether I wouldn't consider being the artist in residence on the project. And of course, I leapt at it. And it was initiated uh, in Paris at the Centre for Astrophysics. And it started to unfold from that point. And it was like jumping in at the very, very deep end. I'm not an astronomer. I'm not a scientist. But I attended every session and slowly started to grasp what was going to be undertaken. It is very difficult to engage that world because the language is full of acronyms. And unless you know what the acronyms are, you have no access into that world at all. So it was learning a new language, which has taken me 12 years to start to understand what they are doing. But the intriguing thing was that the two-square-degree field was promulgated as this deep field of study using Hubble, using Chandra, uh, which is a uh, telescope uh, in space, and then uh, a land-based telescope on Hawaii, which is the Subaru telescope, which was our major ground-based telescope on this 13,000-foot high volcano. But in that first uh, session, everybody was extremely excited. And I remember they dealt with, with many aspects of the project. And I suppose I asked the silly question of where is the two square degree field? And there was a lot of confusion as to trying to explain to an outsider where the two square degree field was. And Nick Scoville eventually came back to me and he said, well, the two square degree field that we're studying is just below the constellation of Leo, if you look out in that direction. And if you extend your arm and you close one eye, it's three thumbprints by three thumbprints just below Leo. 
And of course, that made such a huge difference to be able to know exactly where it was. And of course, also to be able to have some bodily relationship to it. Because for the astronomers, it was a mental construct, which in some ways is kind of obviously pinned on the sky, but uh, it doesn't always uh, seem to uh, locate them bodily. So I, I, over the years, have said that the astronomers are disembodied eyes, that they are able to look into these incredible depths, they're able to visualize things, but that they, they don't take their bodies there. They can't. I mean, uh, in the two-square-degree field, we're looking two-thirds of the way back to the Big Bang, and I mean, we're having difficulty, you know, getting to the Moon or to Mars. There is just no way that our species at this present moment could possibly get to these extremities of what we're looking at in the creation of the universe. And, of course, you know, the Big Bang theory comes up and dark matter and dark energy. And so there are many very, very complex ideas. The idea might be simple, but the description of it is extremely uh, uh, complex. And I suppose with my interest in the art of other cultures, there has very often been this, this link to the sky. So I've spent many expeditions uh, traveling through Micronesia and Polynesia, spending time with the last of the celestial navigators. And just to see how very early on our species needed to use the stars, particularly in the Pacific and the oceans, to be able to guide them across these vast distances of oceans without getting lost. I'm sure many of them did get lost along the way, but that eventually the sky became a map in their consciousness. And on Mauna Kea, um, the volcano in Hawaii, there are historical descriptions of how King Kamehameha, the very early navigator king, created a school, the stars, for the navigators who would climb the volcano and lie on the rim looking out at the stars to learn them. And that's where these great telescopes are today that still look out into the universe, that are our eyes out way beyond where our species have been able to look beyond our own galaxies towards the singularity of the Big Bang. And... It is awe-inspiring to be on that room, you know, because there is very little light pollution. Hawaii so far away from any major landmass, and at 13,000 foot you are above the clouds, and uh, you have a view which looks as though you could reach up and grasp a star, that you can feel the space between them. And when we do spend time at Subaru, we leave the coastline in four-wheel drives at about three in the afternoon and go halfway or two-thirds of the way up. We acclimatize and then just before sunset, drive to the top to the telescopes and the light disappears and slowly this darkness emerges and the telescopes start focusing. 
And uh, it's remarkable to feel, you know, these images that move technologically through these telescopes. They're no longer uh, lenses. So it, it is electronically transmitted. We can only be up there for about an hour, an hour and a half, because the oxygen deprivation affects your eyesight. So standing there, there is this extraordinary kind of collapse in time from the earliest navigators who found their way to Hawaii and to Easter Island and these enormous voyages of exploration and that our astronomers are involved in the same sense of looking out into an unknown and mentally making these links as we look further and further back in space and that the telescopes today, you know, are, are not optical telescopes. They're looking, they're using X-ray and infrared and radio telescopes. So we are really dealing with the invisible and with very faint energies. And, you know, so many cultures have spoken about the power of the invisible and things that are known through intuition or that artists who look through matter and have seen the underlying energies and structures of things. So we have on many levels this capacity to look, understand and extend our perceptions by the technologies of our time which change our consciousness and deal closely with our creation myths and cosmologies. I always say to the astronomers, well, maybe the Big Bang you know, is just our current creation myth. And there's a lot of knowledge around it, but the Chinese had creation myths and the Africans have creation myths and they were really believed. And uh, thought structures have shifted so dramatically over time that one has to remain fluid and in many ways accept what comes towards one, but there is this constant sense of questioning, translating it into ways of communication. And Nick Scoville, who is one of the world's great astronomers, had very interesting conversations with him where he works on these major equations constantly. He says that there are points in the year where he does leave Caltech and he goes uh, into Montana to his cabin uh, with his dog and he spends time there thinking about cosmic evolution and he says you know he comes to insights which he then backs into the mathematics and I think that notion of backing an idea into the mathematics is so extraordinary so it's working from the intuitive into the rational and uh, so I think this is the terrain that artists and scientists work in constantly of how does one concretize thought, how does one make insight visible, communicable, and you know, that is the great joy of it, the sense of adventure and the sense of a linkedness to a community because both art and science are community-based. You know, it is a network of ideas and that we very often develop languages that spin off each other and slowly extend this language. And there, of course, are major individuals who make those paradigm shifts, but those then ricochet into this network which does shift uh, consciousness 
and and the paradigm in both these fields. Coral, yeah, that's fascinating account. I'm really interested in taking you back to those early conversations with Professor Scoville, who of course is a professor of astronomy at Caltech, as well as the leader of the Cosmos Project. What was he wanting from you as an artist in residence on this project? And I'm particularly struck, as you were saying, that most of the information that the astronomers are working with is invisible. It's infrared, it's radio waves, it's tiny fragments. So it's a realm of invisibility, but he wanted you as a visual artist because his first engagement with you was around your exhibition, wasn't it? The Status of Dust exhibition. What was it in that exhibition that made him recognize that you could play this role as an artist in the Cosmos Project? So, you know, I think there obviously was a, a connection with a way of visually mapping and corresponding with the language that he was aware of. He was not interested in portrait paintings in New York or there was something about the almost cartographic nature of the works that I'd produced on Reunion, which pricked his consciousness. Also, you know, he always says he would have been a sculptor if he hadn't been an astronomer. And uh, sculptors uh, explore space with physical material. And so Scoville in mathematically constructs space or perceives space as a sculptor. I think Scoville was interested in to see how I would be able to translate the ideas that they were working on. And for me to be able to share the project with a broader audience, rather than it being just trapped in a website or in papers, to give it a human face. I always would introduce myself to the lectures that I gave as an outsider, and that my view was a very terrestrial view of what they are doing. The thing that struck me particularly was that most of the physicists were so focused on the small detail of what they were studying, and studying that so intensely, they very seldom saw how those parts fitted into the whole and the significance of this project for our species. I mean, this is the first time we have been able to look beyond the glare of the sun and the moon and of our own galaxy into these extraordinary depths and that the astronomers in many ways get caught in that detail. So I was asked to give a lecture at each presentation. So as a team, we have met all around the world. So I'm sometimes with them at the Max Planck Institute in Munich or at the Center for Astrophysics in Paris, or we're in Hawaii at the University of Honolulu, or at the Cosmic Dawn Center in Copenhagen, or at the University of Kyoto or Tokyo. So this is an international group of astronomers, Russians, Chinese, Americans, Italians, Swiss, so amazing to to see this global consciousness and study of what is out there. And so in these 
in these uh, meetings, each of the astronomers would be given about 15 to 18 minutes to do a presentation of their most recent findings. And towards the middle or the end of the conference, I was normally given about three quarters of an hour to an hour. And my lectures were always mobbed because they, in many ways, pulled together many of the ideas that they were involved in, but pulled together the fragments to see their project in human terms and how significant it was that it was not just something that happened on a page, but did shift uh, our perception of each other and of the world. You know, we've, we've had access, huge access to Hubble's time, and there are major studies that have been done by the group of galaxy formation. In that small two-square-degree field, we have found over one and a half million new galaxies galaxies as large as the one that our solar system is in, if not larger. And so the cosmos, the two square degree field, was chosen because it was pretty nondescript in the sky and it could be seen from both the northern and the southern hemisphere. And it has created this tunnel of looking towards the centre of the universe around which many of the new projects are starting to build. So we have this very deep core and new telescopes are allowing us to look much wider. So they will look wider and then slowly move to the depths that we are in already. So Scoville has always emphasized the sense of working on science, but the, the team is one of the longest uh, extant teams because of its human component. The interaction between the astronomers, between myself and that community, the pleasure in the company of each other. And in our meetings, we look forward to those times together because we look at astronomy, we have wonderful meals together, we discuss things around astronomy, art, life, so it is not just a tweezer-lipped kind of exploration of the scientific. And I think that's the great capacity that Nick Scoville has brought to the project. And he is deeply admired in that community because of his great science, his sense of creating a community and the generosity of people. Or what were the conditions for your residency? Was it completely open-ended or other than giving lecture at the annual gatherings of the science team? Were there expectations or outcomes? Did you have to commit to producing a certain number of exhibitions? Because you have done exhibitions with the work produced in the project. I think the greatest gift one can be given is to have somebody who has confidence in you. And Nick Scoville and eventually the team had that and in me. And I produced quite large bodies of work which were shown in New York at the Smithsonian, in, in London, Copenhagen and in Finland. And so there have been a whole series of exhibitions and catalogues which have looked at the ideas both of the astronomers and of myself and the interaction between them. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time around the world in these great observatories and 
And then I've always said to the astronomers, well, you know, my studio is my observatory. And uh, so there are these two very different ways of both looking outwards and looking inwards. Mine has been very often looking inwards and trying to find ways in which to make what they do accessible to those of us who live in ordinary communities and who don't have access to these ideas. And uh, it's difficult to extend those ideas for people to grasp. It's not always possible because it is like a, a totally different language. And the language of X-ray and infrared and radio telescopes is, uh, is very, very distinct. And so for me, it's been very interesting to learn those languages and to be able to use them in my work. And what I also find interesting is scientists often have a rather 19th century idea of what art is. And you've come into this relationship with the Cosmos Project with, I think I can describe it as quite uncompromisingly contemporary post-Duchampian notion of art and art practice, that it's not simply illustrative, it's not about creating windows on a world, it's a form of conceptual activity. Do you think the scientists, through your lectures, through your work, have become more open to that understanding of art and its importance? Definitely. I mentioned about you know these chunks of time that have been given to me in the lecture programs. They have very often led to extremely interesting conversations around art, science, the reflection of self and of perception, you know, how so often our technologies limit what we see or reflect back to us what we want to see and, you know, how we get through many of those conundrums. In the making of my own art pieces, I've always been particularly interested in drawing as a form of reconnaissance that it is not about making pretty pictures or creating product, but it is about a way of understanding and the relationship between eye, mind, and hand. And so, you know, many of the works are two-dimensional, but there are works also that uh, involve uh, working with water and light and light reflections, which have come from ideas around dark matter and dark energy and how light gets transmitted through matter and, you know, just understanding the, the concept of the speed of light is mind-stretching. You know, before we had this term, the speed of light, we had no idea of the scale of our galaxy or our cosmos, you know, and so just the idea of a light year is almost incomprehensible. And then you start extrapolating that in millions. So to use light itself for me was really interesting because these images from distant galaxies very often left their source millions of years ago. So millions of light years, this image has traveled and eventually it reaches our telescope and our retina and then disappears. And when we see it, it really no longer exists. So when we look out into the night sky, we're looking backwards in time. 
And so our notions of linearity of time are deeply challenged. I mean, the astronomers are very often talking about 14 dimensions, you know, and for most of us who live in a kind of three-dimensional world and, you know, the extension into time, and to be talking 15 dimensions, you and I are sitting here discussing art and science, and, and we are traveling at an incredible speed through space in a circular motion at this very time. And somebody in Australia is sitting upside down and somebody in London is, you know, supposedly the right way up. But we all think we are sitting upright. And so the dimensionality of time, of space, and then on top of it, the extreme speed of the expansion of the universe, everything is moving away from everything else at this astounding speed. And so it really does question the fixed nature of our material world, but also our mental world as you start to enter that. So in looking at this extremity or these extremities of space, for me has been awe-inspiring uh, on the one hand and very exhilarating. And then on the other, it has been deeply destabilizing in that one just feels so tiny and insignificant. And so it's like walking this tightrope between being significant and insignificant and finding an axis through that, you know. I mean, the extraordinary wealth of discussions uh, with the astronomers over these 12 years, you know, is cumulative. And we did visit uh, the Goddard Space Centre uh, to see the uh, James Webb um, telescope being built and uh, just to be in close proximity to that to see this high technology of a telescope that started to be built 30 years ago that if you think how technology has moved in 30 years how they constantly had to upgrade 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 the technologies and rehearse 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 and to be in the presence of this telescope that is being built of beryllium this rare metal that is very, very light and it doesn't refract any heat but is carcinogenic. So to see everybody in spacesuits working on it and having this lightest metal and then these hexagonal, you know, reflected discs of the telescope covered in gold. So to have the heaviest metal that we know and the lightest metal in one object and then to see these sort of almost coffin-shaped sails stacked one on top of another, you know, that will protect the instruments from the sun as they take their place in the shadow of the earth and the moon, and uh, so that they can capture these very faint images, you know, to see this telescope go up on Christmas Day was so tense-making and exhilarating for the whole community because this telescope you know is shot one and a half million miles out into deep space and it takes three months to unfurl just the unfurling of it every little technical move is extremely uh, complicated and has been tested and tested and tested and uh, we can't wait for it to go online and uh, the Cosmos astronomers have one of the largest allocations of this coming year in being able to, to use James Webb. So to be in proximity to 
this moment for our species to be out in deep space and looking with that clarity and that width is really a privilege. And you'll continue to be the artist in residence on the project? Everybody asks, you know, how long will the project go on? So it was initially three years and then went to six years and it's now 12 years and, you know, it just keeps expanding. And what is really so inspiring is to see, I remember some of the first doctoral students at the first meetings in Paris who are now heading up the project. So one feels this intergenerational transmission of knowledge from their professors to the younger astronomers. And Nick Scovel is now quite an elderly man, but he's still very much involved. But one just feels that the science is in good hands because of the sense of training and kindness and being able to help one's students to look more widely than one has ever been able to do. And I suppose for us as teachers, that is the great capacity to be able to inspire and to empower. And uh, so often in academia, what has saddened me is that I have seen many academics use their knowledge as a weapon, in a sense, not to share, but to put people down and to keep their positions. And for me, this need to let go and to, to empower is a great capacity of our species, again, to be able to move forward. And that my deep interest in paleoanthropology comes from that. If one sees how many experiments our species has been through as it has emerged in the Rift Valley and, you know, Leakey thought that there was only kind of one line and in the fossil record it looks as though it's much bushier and that there are experiments and dead ends and slowly how our species have emerged and the sense of creativity, the sense of inventiveness from the cradle of mankind, you know, out to to James Webb. It's a very long journey. And in my childhood, I grew up uh, not far from Stoke-Contain, McCrondry and Swartkrans, and was fascinated in those early fossils and got to know Philip Tobias at Witz and his uh, deep interest and his work at Stoke-Contain. And then through him, met Donald Johansson, who found Lucy. And Donald's uh, great continued interest in, you know, the finding of the very early fossils at Hadar in, um, in Ethiopia. And to see that, that same very complex sense of trying to understand the morphology of the skeletons, the skulls, the developments and also moving out beyond Africa, you know, these migrations out into the Middle East and eventually into China, Japan, Taiwan and out into the Pacific and, you know, the canoes which I spoke of. Constant sense of pushing out and, and finding our way and then the second wave that moves out to the left into Europe and the thoughts that move with these migrations, you know, they're very early ideas around the relationship between humans and animals, to Christianity and Islam, and the impacts of those on people's lives, both positive and negative, you know, which uh, very often have led to terrible divisions and 
destruction in our species. And so it's both inspiring and uh, quite depressing in some ways to see where we are at this point. Yes. And in terms of passing on to younger colleagues, you were involved with Joni Bremer and Gerard Marx in The, the Life of Bone here at Adverts, which has produced that very beautiful publication. Can you talk a bit about, again, the role of arts and artists in relation to this paleological exploration, this exploring the beginnings of humankind rather than, as with Cosmos, the beginnings of the universe? What was interesting in Life of Bone with Herod Marx and with Joni Brenner, the three of us worked a kind of dialogue with each other. Uh, our work is extremely different. Joni Brenner's work focuses on the process of observation and painting and uh, reflection on self. So she would paint a skull a day, either from the same skull, a human skull, or otherwise quite often from a Taung skull or a paleoanthropologically important skull. And um, that in that process of repetitive painting, one saw that the skull looked different in each of them because it was a representation of them. And that the painting was as much about the skull as it was about Joni Brenner and where she was on that day. So it was a kind of marker. And when one saw the wall of skulls, one saw this shift of how we are somebody different every day. We're not the same person. And that when those skulls accumulated, they were quite frightening because they, they felt almost like the remnants of a massacre or, I mean, she sees it as the scaffolding of the face because she's a portrait painter, but the skull traditionally is associated with the end of a life and uh, of death itself and of decay. So these extremely interesting readings and Herod Marx in his own works produced uh, very beautiful drawings of skulls using maps. So speaking to Donald Johansson or to any of the paleontologists, you know, they are literally mapping the dimensions of the skull. They're talking about cranial development and shifts in the zygomatic projection on top of the head, which held the, the muscles for the heavy jaws of gorillas. And we see that disappearing in humans. And so Herod Marx's mapping of those skulls was particularly beautiful. Mapping, there's one small work on that show, which is made of, of stars. So a star map taken and literally the dots creating this extraordinary skull. And so not just mapping what the structure of the skull is, but within the, the void of the cranium where the brain is, is the perception of ourselves and of the universe within that small space. And so it is both the site of science and art and of life itself and so one senses that within his work. My work was uh, related more forensically to each of the sites that in my exhibition, Status of Dust, I have been intrigued in collecting dust from significant sites around the world. So the one which was closest to home was dust collected at Swartkrantz in the Cradle of Mankind, where Bob Brain found 
the earliest traces of the contained use of fire, which is such a significant moment for our species. So I create this dust panel with Swatkrans engraved in it. That, that's sort of a, a reddy brown. And right next to it, abutting it, is a panel which says white sands. And I collected white sands from the silicon area where the first atomic tests were done in California. And so these two moments of fire by friction and nuclear fire sit side by side as marking these shifts in human technology and consciousness. I then collected dust from the center of Soweto and the dust from the site of the Bastille in Paris. And those abutted each other and talked to the violence around the birth of democracy in these two sites. And so I, over the years, have collected dust in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki, and these slowly become works that unfold uh, alongside other pieces. And so that exhibition, The Life of Bone, was held at the Origin Centre, showing paleontological specimens. In fact, the Tang skull was there under armoured glass and 24-hour guard. So very interesting to see where value and significance is held in a scientific object and in the art pieces that surrounded it. Carl, I think that's a good point for us to end on. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful to have time to talk and to, in a sense, thread these very complex ways of thinking that are part of these two disciplines in art and science and that the beauty of the the interaction between the two that yields these extraordinary ways of engaging the world but engaging each other, which is central to our true way of being. I agree with you. Carl, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and to go further with your ideas and the background to your very, very powerful and diverse range of works as an artist. So thank you very much, and I hope to continue the conversation. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Crystal Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Carl Nell, the Senior Adjunct Curator at the Norval Foundation, Cape Town, and the artist-in-residence on the Cosmos Astronomical Survey, designed to probe the formation and evolution of galaxies. I have an exciting announcement about this podcast. At the end of last year, the Arts Research Africa Dialogues were chosen as one of the top 10 art school podcasts on the web by Feedspot.com. You can find the Feedspot link in the text of this podcast, together with links to Carl Nail's work and the Cosmos Project. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself and technically produced by Elna Schutz. The podcast was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music is by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.